The hardest thing to watch has been the evangelical Christians sell out to this false prophet. Someone said they'd rather vote for a tuna fish sandwich than Donald Trump. Same. His actions are deplorable. His attitude towards people of color, women, it's disgusting. The constant lies, the distortions of truth. It's just unreliable, unleashed, unpresidential. I've never seen a man in public view act like this, be so immoral, petulant, and vindictive. A person who has supported our mortal enemies. This man has no positive qualities. I think that as long as Trump prevails, as long as Trumpism prevails, we cannot have the leader that we as a nation are entitled to. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Those were voices gathered by the organization Republican Voters Against Trump during the last presidential election. Of course, you wouldn't know it because it's deja vu all over again. A quick backstory for this show, Notes from America. It actually began as a reporting project back in 2016. We wanted to know what was really driving people into Donald Trump's MAGA movement, like beyond all the heated rhetoric, you know, what was happening at that moment in history. This was still early in the election, kind of like now in this election. And at the time, we kept saying, listen, regardless of who wins the presidency, this movement is going to shape our political culture for a long time to come. And here we are, eight years later, and Donald Trump is almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee for a third election in a row. And all indications suggest that both major parties are eager to have essentially the same debate over again for a third election in a row. So this time around, I'm wondering what these frustrating facts conceal about the trends and evolving dynamics of our country's political culture. I mean, if polling and surveying are accurate, there is not a ton of excitement for either Trump or Joe Biden. So as a thought experiment, consider what we'd learn if we could cleave ourselves away from these two parties as like the defining vehicles of all political engagement. What would the debate look and sound like then? What kinds of unexpected coalitions or new ideas about how to organize our society might emerge? What could we learn about each other's real politics right now? Throughout this election year, we're going to try to answer that question here on Notes from America in conversations with all of you, because I suspect our politics are more nuanced and diverse than they seem at the partisan level. We're going to engage with specific places on the political map, and we're going to engage with specific communities of identity, including ideological affinities. We begin this week by asking listeners who consider themselves conservative to tell us what's on your minds. Note that I did not say who consider themselves Republicans. Rather, if you consider yourself conservative, whatever that means to you, I know that is a hotly debated term, but whatever that means to you, and you do not feel like the Republican Party under Donald Trump represents you, I want to know what you care about right now and where you are putting your political energy. If you're conservative, whatever that means to you, and you do not feel represented by the Republican Party or Donald Trump, 
What do you care about that they're missing? Where are you going to put your political energy? Maybe it's something local or something outside of politics altogether. I don't know. And as we take your calls throughout the show, I'm joined by two people who are also thinking a lot about our political culture and how individuals find themselves within it. Theodore R. Johnson is a senior advisor at New America who studies voter behavior and race. He is a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. And David Siders is a politics editor at Politico who has been traveling the country talking to local political players and voters about the battle to redefine America's political parties. So we'll hear some of David's stories from the road. David and Ted, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. So let us start with the obvious top line. Donald Trump has run away with the Republican primary so far, as expected. But each of you give us your biggest takeaway from the Republican primary in these opening and probably closing weeks. And uh, Ted, why don't you go first? Yeah. So, uh, look, I mean, as you said, everyone pretty much knew that Donald Trump was probably going to win the Republican primary going away. And that's proven to be the case. And the real question has been, can anyone come close? And so I, I think there's there's two big things that stand out to me. Number one is Trump decided not to do any of the debates. And I think he or his team or I, I think the strategists kind of recognize the more people see of Trump, they're entertained initially, and then they don't like the guy very much. And so keeping him out of the public eye, um, which is sort of great against, mm. I think, his sensibilities or his preferences, his, I think has actually served him well in the primary because uh, the things that people don't like about him, many of them have probably forgotten over the last five years those things that if they're if they're swayable. And, um, and, and so they're able to fill in some of those blanks with uh, sort of he's not as bad as, as people make him out to be, you know. So there's some of that happening. Uh, and again, these are for folks that are swayable, not for those that have made up right, their mind. Right. And then the, on, on the other end, um, I think there's a fear that if the criminal prosecution, civil prosecutions, if Trump ends up in jail or otherwise ineligible, there's a race for number two, and it's not so much for the VP, I think, uh, um, as it is for having the next highest number of delegates or being a viable candidate, should the party suddenly find itself in need of a nominee. Mm. And I think that's uh, part of Nikki Haley's biggest case right. for sticking around, at least through Super Tuesday. So if she can make it close, perhaps it'll be interesting. Um, and I think the more people see of Trump over this election year, I think we'll, we'll begin to see some of their previous inclinations return. We're going to unpack a lot of that stuff in detail as the hour goes. But David, what about you? One thing you have noted is that if you look at the New Hampshire primary, for instance, I, I think it was something like 40 percent of people voted for neither Donald Trump or Joe Biden of the people who voted. Right. Is, what, what do you take from that? Yeah, it is something striking and a little bit hard to reconcile with the general election poll and that we see with with Trump ahead. Right. But I do think striking from this primary so far is that, yes, Trump is running away with it. But we talk a lot about, say, Biden's problem with the Democratic coalition and bringing Democrats together. Trump's got a problem, too, in the general election, and that is pulling some of these you know, Republicans who are more skeptical of him into the fold, especially in New Hampshire, like you mentioned, that that percentage is high. And then there was the polling in Iowa ahead of the caucuses that some pretty large number of Nikki Haley supporters uh, saying that they would vote for for Biden over over Trump. Now that's that's not a majority of Republicans, right? But in a, if you end up with a close general election, it, he does have some some coalition problem here. I think. 
coalition problems. Well, the uh, phones are popping as we would expect um, from our questions. So let's immediately get to callers as we talk with the two of you. Uh, let's go to David in Azusa, California. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Can you hear me okay? We sure can. Uh, you are, I gather, a registered Republican, um, but you perhaps don't feel like the party represents you? Well, certainly not uh, because Trump is basically acting, he's already acting as a dictator to the um, Republican Party. And, you know, you're familiar with the Atlantic article. I, I really respect the Christian Science Monitor, and even they did an extensive article about how he is showing dictatorial uh, signs already. I voted for him in 2016. I, I lived in New York for a while, and I knew Donald Trump was a con man. He's a liar. He cheats. He's been cheating his employees. And But he's a con man. He's a very convincing con man. And I thought, you know, I was upset with the Affordable Care Act, and I voted for Donald Trump. I lived in New York. I didn't expect the David, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna move you along a little bit because we got a ton of callers. But so I can hear that you're frustrated with him for the dictatorship piece. What's that going to mean for you in terms of where you're going to put your political energy? Quickly for me. Well, I'm doing everything I can to stop him. I mean, I right now I donate to Nikki Haley, but I'm hedging my bets. I'm also donating to the Democratic Party. Got as soon it. as I get my Social Security check, I donate quite a bit. They, okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, we got a text message that says, I consider myself a conservative. I am disgusted by Trump. I'm disgusted by the kowtowing of the GOP to an individual. Having said that, I don't find a political home with Biden and the Democrats, many of the young ones who I feel are far too left for my taste. Ted, what about my thesis here from those two re remarks? That like the 2020, it's a repeat. Nobody wants it. And it's concealing some true nuances and diversity of politics in the country. Uh, do you see that in 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 the work you're doing? Yeah, so I'll tell you, I, the biggest thing I think is folks are, they know what the Republican Party is, they know what the Democratic Party is, they know Trump and Biden, and so their vote is really a, a sort of judgment on the parties and the direction the parties are, go are going, not necessarily voting in favor of the one they prefer, but voting against the one they're more afraid of. So if you have, a say, a, a moderate conservative who is open to voting for Biden, but is truly a Republican at heart, and they feel that the Democratic Party is moving further left faster than Trump is running roughshod over the Republican Party, like the institutional part of the Republican Party, they may be still open to voting for Trump um, because it's the evil they know or the, 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 you know, the thing that is most familiar to them in a party that isn't all terrible from top to bottom. There might be local or state officials that they're they're supporting. And so the party still feels like a natural home, even if Trump is particularly unappealing. Um, but that is only countered by um, the, the sense that the Democratic Party is moving further left 
um, faster than the rest of the country. For those who see the Democratic parties as sort of their intra-party squabbles as healthy for democracy and prefer that and the sort of grown up in the room that Biden presents as to the, the circus that Trump uh, likes to bring along with him, then um, that their vote for Biden will be more an indictment of the Republican Party in its direction than it is support for Biden. So these are this is turning into an election where folks are voting against the thing they don't want more than they're voting for the thing that they do. This is Notes from America. I'm talking with Theodore R. Johnson, a senior advisor at New America and a columnist for The Washington Post, and with David Siders, a politics editor at Politico, who has been traveling the country talking with people and and politicians about the battle to define America's political parties. And we're taking calls from conservatives who do not feel represented by the Republican Party under Donald Trump. More with Ted and David in your calls coming up. Hey, it's Felice Leon from the show team at Notes from America with Kai Wright. Something happens to me when I listen to this show. No matter the topic or the guest, I can always think of someone I want to tell about what I just heard. And I do. So if you're thinking about who in your life would enjoy this episode or another episode you've heard, please share it with them now. The folks in your life trust your good taste and we would appreciate you spreading the word. Thanks. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And shout out to our new listeners at KERA in Dallas. Glad to have you in the community. This week, we are convening our first Vibe Check Among Voters of 2024. Throughout the year, we're going to open the phones to hear from particular groups of people we think can tell us something about our culture's, our, our country's political culture beyond the partisan binary. We begin this week by hearing from listeners who consider themselves conservative, whatever that means to you, and who do not feel represented by Donald Trump's Republican Party. You can call or send us a text message And I'm joined by two people who have been studying voters and voter behavior closely. Theodore R. Johnson is a senior advisor at New America and a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. And David Siders is a politics editor at Politico who writes their road trip series. He's been traveling around the country talking to people about the state of the parties. So we can also take questions for Ted and David about their work in addition to hearing from conservatives. And David, so before the break... Uh, uh, Ted was telling us that it feels like this is an election in which people are voting against something to register their opposition to the other party more than than anything else. You, in December, wrote a story uh, about the road trip you'd been on all year. Uh, You'd been talking to voters and local political actors, and you said that what you heard across the spectrum was basically depression, that, that everybody is processing politics through loss. Tell me about that, and can you kind of give me an example of what you mean? Yeah, I, I think I was so struck by what Ted said before the break, too. I think it's exactly right. We sometimes call these people double haters. And I think more and more they're deciding elections, right? People mm-hmm. who are frustrated with everything. And I, I do think you see a sense of it's it's loss and also fear of losing more. And you hear this on the conservative side from people who you know, this is the same argument Trump would appeal to in the 2016 election that you know America was great, not anymore, make it great again. It, and you feel it from Democrats too. This this crippling fear that you know 
Biden may not be up to it. And, and there may be a loss here, you know, this year. So, so I do sense, a, a, I think depression is the right way to put it in the electorate. And that's borne out in the polling. I mean, nobody wants this general election. Nobody's too strong, but many, many voters don't want this general election between these two people. And yet that's what, what we're careening towards. Yeah. Ted, do you see this pessimism, that kind of pessimism piece as well? I mean, you study non-white voters, which is a group that is typically quite optimistic. Have you seen a shift to pessimism? Um, I, I have. There's there's still sort of a general optimism about life and making it um, among these groups, and that that is true to form. But there is a this like sort of flagging or, or lagging faith in democracy, um, and and not the idea of it, but the idea that it can deliver on its promises that, you know, government derives its just power from the consent of the governed. That's what the declaration says. But a lot of people don't think government listens to them. And so the vote is, is uh, you almost can't get what you want when you vote for the thing you want. So you end up voting for the thing you, you really don't want, because at least you can stop that from happening, you know, even if you can't, if government doesn't work for you. So there, there is, and, and I think this lack of faith or this, this um, d- decreasing faith in democracy is a direct piece of commentary on the lack of faith in politicians and in the, you know, Congress or the Supreme Court or whoever, or the, or the presidency to do the thing that, that people feel like those institutions should be doing, working on their behalf, mm-hmm. instead of uh, stoking tensions and then leveraging those tensions to shove partisan agendas down the nation's, uh, down the nation's throat. So yeah, there, there, is, um, there is a dire need for optimism um, about the state of our democracy, even among those people that are generally optimistic about their life chances, um, e- even in some instances, despite all evidence to the contrary. Let's go to Frank in Long Beach, California. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I think right now, I, as a as a former Republican, as somebody who used to, for, for many, many years, registered and voted Republican, uh, I feel kind of abandoned. I'm, I'm in Southern California. I think, you know, the Democratic Party has been in, in power here for almost my whole lifetime. And for the most part, you know, all we've seen is terrible policies regarding the homelessness issue and problems just increasing. At a national level, Trump certainly does not represent me. I think he's a narcissist and is only interested in his own historical uh, legacy uh, he has no real ideas. But then again, I think at this point, neither does the Republican Party. At this point, I really feel a sense of abandonment. And on the other side, I I don't think Joe Biden is fit to govern at this point. I don't think they would let him debate because I don't think he can answer basic questions in, in a functional manner. You mean, you, you, you I, mean because I, I of his think, age, Frank, is that what you're talking about? Correct. Well, and, and when you see him interact, I don't think he is. I don't think he is is functioning sufficiently to be in charge of this country. And and I think that I I certainly would welcome a breath of fresh air. And if, if it was from either party, I would love to see it. Let me ask you this, um, Frank, just just to, just because we got a lot of folks, but just to move you along. Let me ask you this. What is this going to mean for your what you're doing with your political energy this year? As quick as you can. I'm more focusing on a local level. I'm focusing on a very local level, and I, you know, as far as at the presidential vote, I've never voted for for Trump. I I never will, Um, but I I will just be a very 
you know, depressed, depressed voter on Election Day when it comes to presidential politics. Thank you for that, Frank. Let's go to Abshir in St. Paul, Minnesota. Abshir, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, personally, I think that uh, Trump plays too much of a, of a identity politics rather than, you know, pushing policies that affect us. I won't be voting for him this year, but last year I did vote for him, mainly because I wanted to just like to change the system, but he's changed the system into a way that just works for him mm. and his legacy. I don't think he is for the American people or the Republican Party. Um, you Can I ask you, I can I ask you, you said you voted for him because you wanted to change the system. He didn't do that. What is, where no, do you put I, that change the system energy now? I think he's just playing the system at this point and just playing identity politics to the point that he's just, you know, talking back and forth rather than real change. Um, but I mean, for you, where, where do you put that energy that you had? Where, where do you find an outlet for that desire to change the system? I think years of promises made by Democrats and Republicans that haven't left anything but, you know, people staying in politics for 20 plus years. Locally, uh, I, I vote. I vote Democrat and Republican, so just I'm voting for people who are eager to, you know, not stay in politics forever and build a legacy for themselves, but really just change the country. Got it. Thank you so much for that. Um, this question, so one of the callers there from Long Beach uh, is, I presume, sub- suburbs, I'll call Long Beach suburban, sorry for folks, folks in Long Beach if you disagree with me, um, but suburban voters that fit this profile have been of, of conservatives who like Abshir or Ike Frank uh, just cannot, can't get down with Donald Trump at this point have been pivotal in the last couple of elections. Uh, Ted, can I start with you? Do you see that as still an important group right now? And if so, what is the dynamic you see amongst them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is going to be a turnout election. I, I guess all elections, you know, <laughs> foundationally kind of are. But here, I think um, suburban voters, and I think this was the case in 2020, they are going to be the ones that that determine who wins in these purple states in particular. Um, so if you look at a place like Georgia in 2020, the governor is a Republican, wins re-election. The secretary of state, Republican, wins re-election um, by com- more comfortable margins than they did in 2016. Uh, but Trump loses the state to Biden. And the two senators um, are also Democrats. And so at the statewide election level for for the Republicans that Georgia is sending out to the country, out to, to D.C., all Democrats. But internal, um, almost all of the statewide election officials are Republicans. And I think this is what we're going to see more of. Re- Republicans, conservatives, particularly those that are moderate and in the suburbs and, and white middle class are going and, and educated, um, and we're, you know maybe some working class, but mostly educated, are going to split ticket their voting. They're not going to support Trump at the top. Maybe they leave it blank. Maybe they vote for Biden. Maybe it's third party, and then down ballot at the state and local level, they'll vote for Republicans. And Trump is losing those folks. The folks that he won in 2016, like the caller who said, I was looking for change, just looking for something different. He had the opportunity to deliver that and didn't. And now people aren't buying the shtick in the same way. Those suburban voters are going to be the most difficult to convince, um, if you're a Trump strategist, to bring them back to where they were in 2016 and to abandon their 2020 positions, which helped uh, Biden and the Democrats quite a bit. So that, that's that's my sense of, of where these suburban voters are gonna, uh, gonna fall out. The question will be how many of them show up to vote at all 
typically they're they're a high turnout crowd, so it could be quite consequential in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Well, you bring up Wisconsin, David. You reported from there on this question, in part at least, um, in your road trip series. Um, and you opened that story with an anecdote about a historic site uh, for the party in Ripon, Wisconsin, is a kind of scene of of, of what's happening uh, for Republicans there. Can you set the seed for us from that? Yeah, the uh, Little White Schoolhouse, right, was where the, the yeah. uh, ancestral home of the GOP was getting moved, um, and Republicans there were pretty frustrated with it. The 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 broader thing I think going on in Wisconsin was just how big a deal abortion ended up being. And that was a, or is a story, not just to the suburbs, but motivating college towns and even playing with some independents in more rural areas. But I think Ted's right that this election gets decided in the suburbs just because of the the math. You divide you know, the electorate last couple of presidential elections looks like around half is in the suburbs and the rest are split between urban areas and and rural areas. Uh, so I, I, and I do think issues like abortion, as it played in Wisconsin, will be big again in in the presidential election. Uh, as will you know, questions of democracy and and some of these court co- or court cases. And uh, again, to what Ted spoke about the idea of education, you see that being a a big shift in the in the party's coalitions. I think where Democrats more and more are the uh, white collar college educated party. And the reason that you see Republicans making some inroads with with blue collar workers is because they're appealing more to to voters who don't have that college education. And so that's a, a shift, I think, away from some of the other demographic coalitions in the parties to instead one based around education. So interesting that Frank is from Long Beach, where he's seen this. He's not in Orange County; he's in LA County, but uh, so close there to have seen that shift in Orange County. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to Tim in Raleigh, North Carolina. Tim, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my comment is simply that the, uh, as I remember the Republican Party when I was growing up and was a member of um, an office holder in, um, was a, a sense of a moral compass, um, which it seems to me they've abandoned. Um, they used to be conservative. That's why I no longer um, consider myself a Republican. I'm now registered independent. Um, but conservatives don't have uh, a home in the Trump party. Um, and, and it's really disheartening. Um, this will be an election where I see myself not voting, mm. um, which is awful because I feel like it's my civic duty to do that. And I simply don't have um, a, a viable choice. Um, what are you going to do also, instead? If you, if you don't vote, what, what, what are you going to do with that energy instead? You say you feel awful, but where, where, where are you putting that political energy then? Yeah. Well, for the time being, I'm putting it in Nikki Haley just as a protest vote. <laughs> um, I'd like to see her get something respectable. Um, there's no way she's going to get the nomination. Everybody knows that. Nikki Haley knows that, but, um, that's where my voice is currently. Um, but down ballot, the the effects for conservatives are awful. I mean, here in North Carolina, it's a dumpster fire for everybody trying to run for the the Trump vote, and it's just it is just remarkably. I mean, I've heard the the word used so many times on your program. Like, it's so depressing mm. um, that this is this is what we've become. Thank you for that, Tim. Let's go to Carol in Chicago. Carol, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So I would like to sort of correct the whole messaging, because in my opinion, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans are not conservatives. So it's not conservative to want to tell a woman what she can do with her body. It's not conservative to tell parents what books their kids can read or what health care they can access. And it's certainly not conservative to try and overturn an election. So I I really think that we have to make a a point of of saying that the current Republican Party is, is not a conservative movement. There are very few true conservatives left in it. Thank you for that, Carol. Uh, David, the, we heard the word depressing. We've used depressed a couple times. Um, one of the things that you reported on is in talking to local Republican officials, how much you found them truly, like literally depressed um, about the state of things. Is that an accurate representation? What, what, what did you see? Yeah, I definitely think so, especially among the people who are, I, I think we heard somebody say they, they feel homeless. Um, in the GOP. And I think for people who are critical of Trump and the Republican Party, there is that. And the reason that it is so depressing for them is that these are people who maybe not like you or me or or, or normal people. I mean, th- these are people who dedicate their lives to, you know, they serve on school boards or they go to the weekly county GOP meeting. I mean, they're not doing that because they anticipate some fantastic future in politics. They're doing that because for whatever reasons, and there, there's different ones, they care about, in some cases, public service, or in some cases, they care about the machinations of politics. Uh, in some cases, they care about ideology. And I, I do think there has been a, a wrenching depression for some of those people seeing the, the party move from, um, you know, it, only for the people who are opposed to Trump and MAGAism, I guess, to, to see the party move in that direction. Now, I don't want to overstate that case, though, because One of the incongruities here, I think, is we hear from people and including on this show saying, I'm not going to participate, like I might just have to sit out. But turnout's been up. Uh, People are angry and mad about their politics. But we've seen empirically the last couple of elections, people are participating. So I'm not exactly sure how to square that. But in in fact, they are coming out and voting. Uh, You you sound like you wanted to chime in on on that, Ted. Quickly, we got about 30 seconds before we got to go to break. Oh, yeah, I was just agreeing that anger, you know, for a certain part of the population, anger increases turnout. And so when they're dissatisfied with what government's doing, they go vote. For other parts of the population, they're actually uh, turnout increases when it comes to um, th- like being inspired uh, with someone with an optimistic optimistic uh, vision uh, for the country. And, and just one quick point on Republicans not being conservatives. Uh, th- this is, you know, if you are conservative in the Republican Party, you have a couple of options. One is to leave or, or, or be primaried out. Um, and then the other is to be quiet. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's uh, what a lot of them are doing. And then a few, uh, most of the, the notable ones that we see uh, on TV most, they switch and they become MAGA Republicans instead of conservatives because that's where their political futures in this current version of the party are um, can be most can be best realized and it, it's unfortunate. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, talking with Theodore Johnson and David Siders, and taking your calls. More after break.
This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And before we get back to our vibe check with conservative voters this week, a word about another vibe check we're going to do soon. I want to hear from Democrats who are upset about the way the Biden administration has responded to Israel's invasion of Gaza, and maybe so much so that it could affect the way you do or don't vote in the fall. You can record a voice memo and email it to us at notes at WNYC.org. For Democrats out there who are upset about the way Biden has handled Gaza. Okay, so as I said, throughout the year, we're going to ask particular groups of listeners to chime in about the state of their own politics. And the hope is we can learn something about our country's political culture beyond the partisan binary by doing so. This week, we're hearing from conservative voters who do not feel represented by the Republican Party. I'm joined by Theodore R. Johnson, a senior advisor at New America, and by David Siders, a politics editor at Politico. So we can also take questions for Ted and David about the election itself. Okay, so I want to talk about another particular group of voters, and this is black voters who are more conservative. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily being Republicans. I mean, being conservative. And Ted, these voters are getting a lot of attention in recent months because there has been some surprising polling that shows a meaningful number of black voters considering Trump in 2024. So can you first just explain the trends that are showing up in polls, and then we can talk about what you think is real and not. But first off, what is it we're seeing? Yeah, so what we're seeing, particularly in the approval numbers, are Biden's approval numbers with black voters tanking uh, relative for a Democratic uh, president, which, you know, means like in the 60s. Um, and, uh, and there being some openness to a second Trump presidency. And most of that movement appear among black voters appears to be concentrated among black men, usually those around, you know, in their 20s and early 30s. They typically are, are on the younger end of, um, of the spectrum. And so and what we don't know is how these approval number ratings will translate into electoral decision making. In the past, even when a Democratic president is is not doing well with black voters, when the election shows up, about 90 percent of them end up voting for for the Democratic president. Um, Turnout numbers often determine whether or not those numbers determine who wins the election. So and and, and quickly sort of just just to sort of put this in, in historical context between 1964 and 2004, about 12 percent of black voters supported the, the Republican nominee for president as high as uh, 15 or so percent, I think, with Nixon in uh, in 72 ish and as low as, um, you know, seven or eight with with Reagan in the first time around. Since Barack Obama's come on the scene, Republicans have not been able to get double digits at all with black voters. Four percent in 08, six percent in, in uh, 12, another six, seven percent in 16, and then eight percent with this last uh, election that Trump got in 2020. So if you only look at the last 12 years from 2008 to 2012 or 2020, it looks like Republican support among black voters has doubled from four percent in 08 to eight percent today or in 2020. But that is still you know, a third below of what the Republican average was for four decades. So I think what we're seeing is a rebalancing after Obama has left the scene. Um, Those folks, those black folks that were voting Republican before he arrived, 
They stopped when he was here around, and now they're returning to the fold. And the question is whether this version of the Republican Party, led by Trump, can increase upon the 8% they got in 2020 and maybe get back to the historical average since 64 of 11 or 12%. If they're able to do that, it will be the story of this election and um, will baffle lots of political wow. scientists in the process. Wow. So just to underline here, the point is that the, this is Obama years was actually the anomaly yes, for the absolutely. amount of black support for uh, Republicans, which is to say there are meaningful numbers of black people who are conservative. And I think both in the Republican and the Democratic voter camps. Um, and I'm That's kind right. of wondering about like what that means for them, period. So first off, listeners, if that's you, if you're hearing yourself being described right now, call us up if you are black and you are conservative and you are trying to find a home for yourself. Um, Ted, setting aside whether or not they will or will not migrate to Donald Trump under today's Republican Party, what does it mean for our political culture in general? This, you know, is it a meaningful part of our politics, this group of black people in both parties who are conservative and don't necessarily have a place to go? Where, what, do you, what do they want and where, do, where might they go? Maybe that's the Yeah. So the last numbers I've seen are about one in five folks, black folks identify as conservative, about 40, 45 percent is moderate and then about a quarter as progressive or, or, or liberal. So one in five black folks being conservative, if they were Republicans, Republicans may not have lost an election since Reagan in this time. <laughs> you know, one in five was the sweet spot for lots of Republican strategists. So what does it mean to be black and conservative in America? Generally speaking, and this is a this is a, a, a generalization for sure. Um, black black conservatives are just like white conservatives across the board, except for one area: civil rights. The role of government when it comes to ensuring racial equality is enforced and available to folks across the country. Most black folks recognize the role of the federal government in ensuring those protections are afforded and available. Um, there are some black conservatives that just don't, it's almost in the sort of black Panther or black pride tradition. We don't need mm -hmm. government's help. We need government to get out of the way and we can take care of ourselves. Those kinds of black conservatives are, tend to be the black men that you will find voting for someone like Trump or voting Republican. Um, but it's the issue of civil rights that causes black conservatives, conservatism to depart from white conservatism, which also decreases the number of black conservatives that support Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. David, you reported from South Carolina on just the overall trend about Black voters this year. The state is, of course, a bastion of Black Democratic Party politics and is famously credited with being Joe Biden's firewall in 2020. Um, and you found meaningful uh, concern amongst local Black Democrats about uh, about people losing some enthusiasm. Tell, tell me what you heard. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Democrats there take this very, very seriously because they see it uh, locally. I, I was sitting around uh, with some young Democrats in Colombia one night, and and that this is exactly what they were talking about. They just seen a bunch of victories for Democrats uh, in races around the country, but they were talking about these polls with black voters expressing more, you know, either either favorability for Trump or disappointment with Biden, and. It's not just, you know, this isn't just one-offs. I mean, Democrats see this in focus groups around the country too, uh, the strategists talk about. And I think I think part of it is the unevenness of the recovery, the economic recovery. Like there, there is not a feeling in some communities that the, the benefits have been widely felt. And I think the foreign entanglements that uh, the Biden administration is involved in 
don't sit well with some black voters who say we have a lot of problems here at home. And I think more generally, there's some feeling that, you know, especially black women, but black voters in general, this reliable voting block for Democrats for so long and a question of, you know, what do we have to show for it? So I, I do sense a lot of frustration. I, and I'm not sure anybody thinks that the numbers at the end of the day will look like they do in the polling right now. But as Ted says, if it even changes a little bit, um, that's a huge, that has big implications, not just for this election, but for the Democratic Party for a long time. I mean, the whole promise for Democrats of demographic change had been that as the country became more diverse, uh, Democrats would be ascendant. And we're at this moment in politics, I think, where that's really, really in question. Yeah. Let's go to Catherine in Hardwick, Vermont. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling. What do you want to chime in about? Well, you know, I just want to say that in my lifetime, I have been both Republican and Democrat, as well as independent. And I am a lot more conservative than I used to be. Um, and there's just no way that I could vote for Trump. I don't see him as an honest, honorable man. And I'm going to go independent and vote for Robert F. Kennedy Jr., because I think he has a lot more to offer than hmm. either of the other candidates. Okay. Thank you for that, Catherine. So there's there's a vote that is uh, that is in fact going to break out of the two-party system this year. Let's go to Cheryl in Oregon. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Hello. Approximately six states hold all the electoral college votes, and we know that's how Trump was elected. So why should those of us who live in states with few electoral votes vote? Mm. Well, that's a very good question, Cheryl. So, so first, well, let me before I go to our guest to to chime in on this, Cheryl. Where where do you, um, if you feel that way, where do you put your political energy? Currently, uh, I am putting it all on watching the Middle East situation. It's it's something that is vital to I think everyone, not only we in America. But I have not, at this point, decided that I will vote at all. And this is a first for me. I am a very devoted political worker, have been for many years. Uh, And this question about the Electoral College, I think, is vital. One, I would like to have seen us do something about it in the interim. However, we did not. But let's uh, let's get some answers on this, please. Thank you, Cheryl. So to both Ted, both you and and David, this two ideas there. Um, one, um, f- meaningful third party candidates. Um, how much, um, Ted? I guess let's start in your reporting. How much are you seeing something that feels like this might be different in this election than previous ones that people are meaningfully saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take another option here." Yeah, I'm not sure. It's still too early. Um, I, I, my sense of it is it looks a lot like 16 and 20, where, you know, there was a little while where like people like Tom Steyer or, or Michael Bloomberg were polling really well. And then as soon as the rubber met the road, they completely fell off and then their campaign sort of died out. My sense of it is that the same thing will happen with Kennedy and the Democratic Party, and then perhaps, probably Haley in the Republican side, even though she's a more viable competitor on, in that party than, than I think Kennedy is in the, in the Democratic Party. But let's say folks expend their third party energy during the primary system, and now it's election day, November, and it's 
it's Trump v. Biden, other names, Cornell West, Robert Kennedy, maybe third party, maybe no labels puts a third party candidate there. I don't think a lot of people, are, the, the protest vote that goes there, my sense of it, it they will be more likely Trump, uh, disaffected Trump, disaffected Republicans exercising it there than, than Democrats. And I think that's because Democrats learned their lesson or Democratic leaning voters learned the lesson from 2016 that a third party vote might be the one that prevents your preferred candidate that you may not love from, from winning, but that you would much rather uh, have won over over Trump. And, and that's Hillary Clinton, of course, in 16. So I, I, I think it's it's it makes for interesting primaries. I don't think it's going to make much of a difference once we get to the general. Yeah. And David, what about um, the idea of people in states that don't feel like, I don't, you know, this doesn't matter to me at all, actually. I don't have a role here. Uh, how, how much have you heard that in your travels around the country? Interesting. Quite a bit, I think. Uh, Oregon, I don't know, what was that, a 15-point win or something for Biden? So that's a pretty, probably a pretty safe bet. I can understand the the frustration, the desire not not to participate. Yeah, I I, I do hear that. And you also hear... From a lot of people who say they in swing states who they say they don't want to know they don't know how they're going to vote they're not sure if they'll you know they they can't stomach trump they're not sure they can stomach biden uh, it it's interesting not to get the the by you know the the binariness of the choice i, I mean I, I spoke recently with this person asa hutchinson who ran ran for president um on a very you know trump alternative kind of line and his pledge during the campaign was that if he would never vote for somebody convicted of a felon felony and i was just struck by it, he refuses to say if he would vote for trump if he's not convicted of a felony which is a scenario he says he can't imagine but here's somebody who's committed to stop it he's a clear conservative has a conservative track record he's committed to stopping trump and yet even there you know it's not 100% certain that that he would vote against Trump and and he says he definitely won't vote for Biden. So I I do think this idea of not viewing this as a binary choice is is very interesting to me. We've got a couple of minutes left and I do want to like game out a couple of like just like election stuff from you two um who are watching this stuff closely. What about running mate? Does Trump's running mate make any difference in any of this conversation for any particular group of voters? Uh start with you Ted. Yeah, it's a great question. And if you had asked me this two or three years ago, I would have said yes. And if he had voted, he had chosen someone like um, like a Tim Scott, you know, conservative black man as his number two, then maybe those black numbers we see on approval ratings might solidify a little bit more um, in an electoral sense. I don't think that's the case anymore. I, I think the um, I just think the, the the Tim Scott's reputation reputation was harmed over the last year or two during this, uh, especially during his presidential run. So I, I actually and and look, political scientists have looked at this. Running mates really don't give you much of a bump at all. But and so what folks are doing, what I think Trump will do, uh, is to select a running mate that guards against your weakest flank and the weakest flank that's movable. And black voters for Trump, um, he it's the, he's He's doing as best as he can, and a black best running mate wouldn't help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Christy Noam, and uh, governor in South Carolina, I think. A, I'm, I'm sorry, South Dakota. I think a white female governor for Trump gives him the best shot at assuaging some of those suburban voters we were talking about earlier. Voters. David, I'm going to put to you instead because we got about 90 seconds here. What about um, 
what if Trump doesn't stay on the ballot? I know it's hard to imagine, but let's say, let's just game it out. What if he, what if somehow Trump doesn't stay on the ballot? What do you think that means for a lot of these kind of disaffected conservative voters in particular? Well, what Ted said earlier about the rationale for Nikki Haley, or one of the rationales anyway, is, is very interesting, right? That she sticks around, she collects some delegates, ends up at the convention. I, I'm not sure that if Trump's not on the ballot, that Republicans elect to put Nikki Haley on the on the ballot, that they oh. don't go some other direction. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that yeah. they wouldn't. I just don't. I'm not sure that it's like convincing to me that, yes, they definitely would go with with this person. So then that makes gaming out how Republicans would do it in November, I, I think, very hard. Oh, um, wow. I hate to hazard a guess. <laughs> well, that's bad news for Nikki Haley. We're going to have to leave it there. David Siders is a politics editor at Politico. He's writing a series called Road Trip 2024, in which he's traveling the country, talking to voters and local political players about the state of the parties. Theodore R. Johnson is a senior advisor at New America who studies voting behavior and particularly amongst black voters and a contributing columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks to you both. And thanks to all our listeners, especially those who called in. Do keep talking to us. Just leave us a voicemail or you can record a voice memo and email it to us at notes at WNYC.org. You'll help us plan out our next upcoming voter live chat. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. This episode was produced by Felice Leone. Our theme music was designed by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Katarina Barton, Regina Deheer, Karen Frillman, Suzanne Gabber, Mike Kutchman, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And I am Kai Wright. Thank you so much for spending time with us. 